You know, most problems in healthcare are fixed already. Primary care is already cured on the fringes. Reversing burnout, physician shortages, bad business models, forced buyouts, factory medicine, high deductible insurance that squeezes the docs and is totally inaccessible to most of the employees. The big squeeze is always on for docs. It's the acceleration of cost and the deceleration of reimbursements. I want you to meet those on this show that are making a difference with host Ron Barshop, CEO of Beacon Clinics. That's me. Direct contracting is a movement with no leader, no headcount, no association, no name. The elements of it are always going to be a self-funded employer, a tiny few of the TPAs, and contractors like Green Imaging or Sano Surgery or Redirect Health or any transparent lab or any wholesale and transparent pharmacy, any direct contracting docs of any kind, any flavor, and savings in healthcare spend are almost always going to be at least 10%, but can be as high at 60% based on some of our past guests. This movement eliminates middlemen forced on us by a bad system loaded with chock full of monopolies. And besides middles, this eliminates waste and fraud and abuse and games, surprise bills for the patient, physician burnout, weights and DMV customer experience, factory medicine vibe, maligned and perverse incentives, costly procedures and tests, coding and billing and all that staff that's dedicated to the money part of the business and advisors that are aligned with employer interests. All fees are transparent for these types of advisors. So this is what I talk always about a future where everybody wins. Everybody wins. You get it now? Our guest today is a thought leader um, who is CEO of Crossover Health. And Crossover Health, if you remember from our interview with Jay Parkinson, has as clients, for example, LinkedIn um, and Amazon. So the, the giants of the techno real royalty world, if you will. So Scott, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you so much uh, for having me. I appreciate being here. Hey, Scott, what I want to do is we've already gotten into the offering of what the, this looks like uh, in your clinics, but I want to get into what I call the 10 lies at the turn of the year and see if you agree with these or not um, from your perspective. So do you believe that independent primary care physicians are soon dinosaurs and that they can, they all have to go work for a big out of uh, their residency? <laughs> As a uh, self-sovereign uh, individual proponent, I just can't believe that that could be a future I would want to be a part of. How many doctors do you think or providers do you think you'll hire this year? Um, we should hire probably another 30 or 40 doctors this year. Okay, so my second in this rapid fire is there's not enough primary care physicians to go around. You agree? I do agree with that. I think uh, we need to get more primary care providers. We need to make the ones that we have more capable and extend their uh, reach. And I think we need to have uh, a very thoughtful way about how we recruit and get more people to go into primary care as a specialty. You know, I, I've, I'm, in, I'm interested why you say that because the, the, if COVID did nothing, it turned um, care into a digital solution that is magnified magnificently in this past year. So it seems to me we never had a shortage. We just had an efficiency problem. Mm -hmm. Am I wrong? Uh, I think we have a little bit of both, actually. 
Um, and, and I'm the biggest fan ever of, I don't think tech replaces the doctor. I think tech enables and makes the, the provider more capable. And so I think you're gonna, you'll need proportionately less of them, but I think there's a, a general under a shortage uh, of primary care. So we might perhaps disagree on that, but I think there's a there's definitely some of both uh, uh, in there. Okay, third question is that our health it always is declining or at least maintains as individuals and as a nation, true or false? Yeah, I believe entropy is a principle of thermodynamics. So I do think that we are in decline unless you put energy into uh, to reverse or to maintain or reverse that. Yeah, but crossover health is a perfect example of reversing declines. Okay, so you are the antidote and others like you. <laughs> That's right. We are the vaccine, the antidote, the treatment, uh, and the solution we hope for uh, the future. What we, what we like to say, Ron, is that we're really trying to build a model for how we think healthcare should be. And when I think about that in, in the most narrow scope, I'm a father, I'm a husband, uh, I have my own family, and what would I want for them? And what I would want for them is to be able to have access to a care team that is aware of their needs, that is available to them when needed, that helps my family make good, smart decisions and choices, guides them when we need the help, and helps keep us accountable for our own care. And we really, when I thought about how I wanted to design uh, healthcare in the future, I thought a lot about my own family. There's millions of other families who have different circumstances. Um, and what I've found is despite all those differences, there are some core things that people really care about. I think people want to, you know, they, they want to live healthy, productive lives. And I think a lot of times they don't know how, and maybe it's just hard. And there's so many obstacles. I think having a trusted advisor to guide you on that journey of discovering what, what does health mean to you and what, what are your goals and then supporting you through that. And certainly I think technology can enable so many parts of that uh, puzzle. And in the end, you know, it, it, a lot of this boils down to, you know, choices that we make and, and, and can we enable people to make choices that, that help them optimize. And so as we started to design all this, we thought of all the ways that we could, we could enable that. And the first thing we did is we started actually with the payment model. We, we tried to flip that on its head because you get what you designed for. And whether you purposely did it or not, fee-for-service architects you into a certain style of medicine that I do not think is going to lead us to the best outcomes. And so breaking away from that allowed us to design a different care delivery model. That delivery model wasn't just the doctor and the nurse. We found that there were many people that needed to be a part of that care team to make it effective. Physical medicine, mental health, health coaching for behavior change, uh, care navigation. And when you put that team together, you actually create a different type of care model. We like to call it primary health. Uh, and, and we like to also describe it as a membership, right? You're, you're actually joining something that is designed to keep you healthy. You want to be a part of it. It helps you stay accountable. It's accountable to you for, for, for what your needs are. And that's really you know, simply what we were trying to do. And we found that we could not do that inside the traditional medical insurance industrial complex. And so we had to get outside of it. And we found that the self-insured employers were paying directly for care. And when they save money, it drops their bottom line. They, there's everyone, like you said at the outset, everyone wins in this situation. The member wins, the provider wins, the payer wins, in this case, the employer. And it just seems like, you know, this is how healthcare should be. And that's why we kind of like that tagline. 
It's way gone past the triple aim. It's the quintuple aim. I've uh, I've read most of your past blogs, and you used a word just now that I want to revisit. We said an episode of care. Define what an episode of care is, because it's quite different from what I've heard from other doctors. Yeah, so we view an episode of care as a discrete set of activities that typically go around um, uh, a medical issue that you have. Sometimes an episode of care can be very simple, straightforward, a single issue situation, you know, I have a UTI. And so the episode of care would initiate from the very first point it would include whatever exam or diagnosis or assessment, and it would include whatever type of follow-up. And we would bundle that kind of single uh, set of activities into an episode. We think it's a good organizing uh, principle. Some episodes of care are much more complex. Um, you know, maybe it's a, a, a pneumonia or something that's multiple weeks or COVID, you know, that's evolving over time for some period of time. And then of course you have the, the chronic issues that are never gonna go away but you have to manage them over discrete units of time. And so we like to bundle our activities and engagement with the patient around appropriate episodes of care. And uh, for the ones that go on forever, we've time bound those so that over the course of a year, here's how we're gonna try to manage your diabetes together and have a nice kind of plan for that discrete period of time versus, hey, you've got a UTI, we're gonna take care of this over three or four days, you know, or whatever, and the follow-ups, and that would become an episode. We think the episode of care is the right way to think about this. Um, not, but even in saying that, not everything is discrete like that. There are many things that are continuous. So what we like to say is this model is intended to provide surround sound care, all those different needs that you might have, but also streaming, right? So when you need us, there's a continuous engagement opportunity. And then we like to bundle those into episodes just for uh, the management and, and, and the discreteness that can come with that. So hopefully that's a kind of a multifaceted view of how we think about episodes of care. Yeah, it's a terrific way to look at it because fee-for-service is going to designate an episode of care as each visit. And you're looking at the entire continuum of health. So let's go back to diabetes since that's the elephant in the room for all of us. Um, what Are you actually tracking how you're either reversing diabetes or maintaining and controlling it or what? What is your data y'all have to support diabetes? Yeah, I, I, I can show you or, or help you think about that. So let me, let me step back a half a step, which is more broadly, how do we think about, you know, just people's health in general and, and prevention and, and, and disease management and so forth. So one of the things that we started doing at Crossover is we realized that, hey, most people who are on fee-for-service, that also puts you on this treadmill, right? So the only thing that you can pay attention to is who's on your schedule because you're just on the rat race, seven to 10 minutes, 15 minutes if you're lucky, with every patient in and out all day long, all you can think about is what's right in front of you. What we like to say is, you know, what, what really should be happening is that don't worry who's on your schedule, maybe worry who's not on your schedule. Who in my population should I be reaching out to? What intelligence do I have about my overall population to know where people are in the different parts of their the cycle? And so, um, you know, we like have a very proactive approach to care. We get a lot of data about our patients. We track over 40 different clinical metrics. Those are social determinants of health, all the prevention and screening, age and gender specific. And then, of course, if you have conditions like diabetes, you know, there's, there's always uh, basically effectively the heatest measures around each of those conditions. And so if you were one of our members, we would have that whole set of data about you. And so then I could start to stage out, oh, 
you know, we need that uh, opto uh, ophthalmology exam in June and we need the foot exam to happen, you know, uh, in, in December, you know, as an example. And so now we start to track that with you and proactively reach out, hey, Ron, you know, we're two weeks away from this. Let's go ahead and set this up. Let's do a video visit because we can examine your feet just fine that way with your help. Um, you know, and let's get you in for that ophthalmology exam because we need to literally physically see you and look into your eyes. So that's how this actually starts to work. And so we start to track and trend ourselves against the standards, right? And to show that the care that we're providing is much more vigilant. We're starting to move people on all those different dimensions. And our employers are starting to figure this out too, because it used to be that when we started, it was just all about the experience because that was the thing that they were initially concerned about. Will people use it? Will people like it? And can you get a lot of people to engage? Once we started blowing out all those numbers and over time, the employers get more sophisticated too. They're like, great, you're seeing a lot of my patients, but are, what, you know, are you improving the health? Let's start now measuring how you're doing on these metrics. And so fortunately for us, we have a great chief medical officer who has been very focused on building the machinery behind the scenes that allows us to track and trend all these conditions. And what it does is it moves the mindset of the providers away from transactional medicine, who's on my schedule today, to much more proactive population focus, who should be on my schedule or who should I be interacting with today proactively? It also changes the nature of your team. I move away from just the doctor and the nurse to start to involve other members of the care team who are really effective and often more effective than the provider. My health coaches are way better to get you to make behavioral changes than my doctors are. And what's really nice is that in combination, they're really effective together. And so that's why we really like, you know, not only the episode of care as, a, as an organizing principle for how we think about the care model, but we love the care teams because that provides a whole different mindset and a whole set of capabilities that we often don't see in traditional practice. So I'm a type two diabetic and my health coach is now talking to me. How often and how often are they getting a read from my glucometer? Yeah, so it depends. Like, so let's let's use an example where someone like, you know, the, the, the employer has already engaged a Livongo, right? And so because Livongo exists at this employer, we don't have to recreate that wheel. We can quote prescribe Livongo, if you will, and, and it's a benefit that's already offered. We, get the, we help get the person enrolled. And then now that person is actually tracking and sharing that data uh, with us. And so depending upon what type of program they're on, that could be weekly checks. It could be much more frequent, uh, depending upon how intense we're going with the servicing. Um, but that now becomes possible. What's interesting about like a lot of those things is even when you're tracking and trending, where does that data go? Like who's looking at that? <laughs> You know, is, is it just going into the cloud somewhere? I mean, is your care team seeing that? Is it shared back with the providers? And so we're just at the beginning of really making this all connected. Because even today, while we might have uh, employer clients that have Lavongo, it's still very much like a manual. We're kind of doing workarounds to get the data. What we're really pushing for is a day where this is just seamless. I prescribe it, you get enrolled in the program, the data flows back to me and we're tracking and trending seamlessly with you. Right now, we do a lot of workarounds to kind of get to those 40 metrics, but that day is going away. If we can figure this out in finance and how the financial data is shared so seamlessly between all these different apps and systems, we've got to be able to figure this out in healthcare. And, and that's really the day I'm looking forward to. And I think that's the role that a lot of these big, you know, tech aggregators and others who are so excited about healthcare, where they could be helping most is actually building in the data liquidity or helping enable the data liquidity between all these different systems, devices, providers, and so forth. Are you tracking um, ER visits, hospital stays, uh, medications prescribed and how they're going down under your management? Yes. Yeah, so what ends up happening is, uh, and again, this is also a workaround. So 
it's not, you think it would be, so it'd be much easier to, when my, uh, one of my members shows up in the emergency department, I should get notified, right? And so you can kind of do some workarounds where we get ADT feeds and then we get alerted to that. They're usually not very timely. Or sometimes, you know, the hospital or provider will know that we're the medical provider and they'll, they'll make sure we're notified. Again, somewhat manual, not perfect, not consistent across all our geographies. In the best case scenarios, we're notified of that. And then we actually follow up with the patient as they're discharged from the hospital. So this is where our care navigators really start to come into play. So we mostly see this when we refer patients. So we're referring them into a cardiologist. Our care navigators will help you get to the right one or two cardiologists in the network. They'll make sure that your, your appointment happens and we'll make sure we get the data back. And again, Ron, I wish I could tell you I had this beautiful AI bot that did all that work, but it ends up being a lot of it is still manual, which tells you where in the cycle we are, how early we still are to really create these closed loop care, closed care loops, uh, you know, uh, cycles. And so a lot of that is still manual by these uh, care navigators, but they're phenomenal. They become the glue that makes it when you go outside of our kind of care that you're still, you know, you know, all that data is coming back. And so we have a lot of room to go there in terms of making that streamlined, simple and easy. But like Paul Graham always says, you do things that are not scalable until you get them to be scalable. So do you have data that says we have reduced admissions by X, we've reduced ER visits by Y, surgery by Z? Yeah, so we, we, that's actually what comes out of the claims data. And so we do get claims data from the, um, uh, when we partner with the employers, all that gets fed into Health Catalyst, who's our partner for that. They munge through all that, and then they create the insights and the reports. We're, you know, we're showing the same things that all these models show. You know, we, where you get the savings is not in the service itself, primary care. You might actually spend a little bit more in the primary care service on a one-to-one -one basis, but where you save all the money is where 85% of the spending actually happens, which is in the secondary care network. So our ability to steer, guide, navigate, to have you not have to have the referral in the first place or to get you off the meds that you don't need to be on or to streamline the ones that you're on, all of that work is where we generate the savings, right? So you see the reductions in the ER, in the urgent care, surgeries, referrals, uh, medication spending actually goes down. Um, and we also have less just referrals to all the ancillary services where all the, you know, the, the fee-for-service pinball machine is just racking up score as you go through it, right? That's a good way to put it. Um, so in my rapid fire questions, I'm gonna throw another one out. True or false, the costs of healthcare are only rising. True. Okay, but you're reducing them. We do, uh, if you're saying, I don't know what you, what-, what Yeah, let me, let me, yeah, the overview is that is crossover health reducing healthcare costs? And I think undoubtedly, yes. Absolutely, yeah, again, it, it makes sense on like 12 levels, right? One is just, you're paying directly for the service. There's no middleman. We wipe out 30% of the cost because we get rid of the whole billing apparatus is gone, right? Secondly, the care model itself does quite a bit of the work. We get the same or better outcomes in half the visits. And we're not cutting visits because we're doing utilization management. We're cutting visits because when we spend more time with you, when we're connected with you between visits, and I'm thinking of mental health and physical medicine specifically, where there's typically a lot of visits, we, we, we get the same outcomes in, in half the visits with a better patient experience. What is and, the uh, typical time that the patient's going to spend with one of your docs? Yeah, so we have 30 and 60 minute appointments, whether in person or online. And what we find is you ought, when you have that much time, you often don't need that much time. But what, but what happens is we like to set those windows because I want my doctors to have enough time because mostly the currency that we deal in is trust. 
And we believe we're the most trusted entity. And it, in, in order to build trust, it takes time. And, and time is the relationship. And time doesn't always have to be face-to-face, -face, right? When people get to know you, uh, and then you can start to interact with them online, or as you start to interact online and develop a relationship, you know, people highly value that. Our doctors are on call 24-7. And, and at the beginning, everyone was really nervous. Oh my gosh, that's such a big commitment. How can you do that? Well, it turns out when you give people access to the providers and they can access you online and messaging and otherwise, it's rare that they pull that lever when they need you. And when they need you after hours, they really need you. And, and that's when the service is actually really well designed and, and that's why we do it. But my point is, is that when you're interacting with, with the members um, like that, you build a lot of trust and you, you're able to, you know, people take 95% of our recommendations, right? And, and, and we, we love that because that, that's, and, and, and of all the people who use the service for any reason, 70% say, this is where I want to get all my care. This was such a phenomenal experience. This was my care team. You know, I get to know these people, they know me and I build a relationship and it takes some time. But when you do that, it really is the magic. It's the currency underlying the effectiveness of the model. Okay, I got four more questions. There's no Superman or Wonder Woman to save us. And I'm gonna answer my own question by saying, the employers are saving us by choosing you. Every time an employer chooses somebody like you or premise or uh, any of the folks that are doing direct care, they are saving healthcare. Well, here's, here's what I would say to that. And I agree. Listen, we, we have 10, 15 years of experience watching Medicare Advantage kind of grow up and really start to evolve and change and shift. And what you find is when you pay those providers differently, the model evolves to do a lot different things than you would think of traditionally for medical. You've got people dropping off food, providing transportation, making sure people are engaging and not lonely. And so you have a purpose-built model for that population that drives to the triple aim outcomes and they're accountable for it. And so I love that. And what we're seeing is people are seeing some of those successes there and we're just, you know, a, a, a way to say it is we're just applying that model to a different population. Crossover is purpose-built for the employers and the employed population. These are people that are working, they're busy, um, you know, they're taking care of dependents, they're taking care of their, their parents. Um, they're in that kind of crucible of, of all of this. And our services are tuned for their needs. We are very technology savvy because that group has to be because they're the work, workforce. And we also have programming that's geared and focused for their needs. And that's a really important part of this membership component. It's not just, crossover is not just here when you're sick. We're here to help you get through life and optimize these other things and how to manage stress and how to manage your promotion and how to do the, all these different things that we're providing because the care goes beyond sick care. We're here to provide the holistic health. And I hope that's what's saving healthcare is these new models that look differently, that go beyond the constrictions and the deformity of what is caused by fee-for-service seven to 10 minute visits. What is your fee? What do y'all charge per member per month? We do, we have a couple different models, so it depends on what it is, but to, to answer your question most directly, you get our services for typically between 50 and $65. Uh, PEPM is one way to think about it. Sometimes the employer will want additional services, extended hours, pediatrics, or other things. But in all the analysis you do, you'll find that you're kind of in that 50 to $75 PEPM range, uh, what these services end up uh, costing. Okay. I've got another few questions for you here. Doctors. True or false, doctors are powerless to radically reverse people's bad habits. Completely 100% false. Yes. <laughs> I, think, uh, I think doctors need to realize where, you know, 
the value of the provider, I think, is in the trust that people have in them, not only their knowledge, which used to be the only thing, but also in the way that they care for them, the empathy, and also who the doctors include in that kind of sacred care relationship. Because I like to say that now as the doctor starts to introduce other members of the care team, hey, Mrs. Jones, you know, we've really got to work on this issue. I want to introduce you to another one of my team members, a health coach who's going to sit and spend time with you to walk through you know, your medication or where you're doing at home or how your exercise program, you know, whatever it is that's going to spend the time in that type of a handoff. Now, Mrs. Jones is going to take that seriously. Or Mrs. Jones, I'm going to prescribe to you Livongo, which is going to help you keep track of your sugars twice a day. And that data is going to come back to me. And, and <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you where this kind of really comes home. We had a patient that was morbidly obese and had tried everything, was totally depressed, um, and it was so interesting is that the doctor said, okay, I'm going to take this on. And I, I tell you what, I'm going to do two things for you. Number one, I'm going to send you home with a scale that you stand on. And when you stand on that scale, I'm going to see the results. And then I'm also going to give you a health coach, right? <laughs> and so um, it's just so crazy. So this person said, you know what? When I knew that you were going to be looking at my results, that motivated me to change my behavior. And then when I got the support from the health coach, that enabled me to sustain that behavior. And so I just thought it was powerful that they had given up on themselves, but when they knew that, um, when they knew that the, the provider, the care team that actually cared enough about them to, to be there to monitor and measure and track with them, and it was gonna walk with them, that's when uh, the behavior changes, you know? Yeah. So you're a big fan, obviously, of wearables. And, uh, oh yeah, man. Yeah, because you know that's going to get the data. The back thing to is the this: like, I just believe, like, I am a huge fan of wearables, and here's why: I don't believe you could drive a car with no instrumentation, <laughs> like nothing, like no light, and all the windows blacked out. Right? You you wouldn't be successful. What what I think the wearables are is a powerful way to instrument the patient, and and it should be done in a way that, with the patient's permission, now you have someone who's tracking with you, right? Because it makes such a big difference. When, 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 when you know there's some accountability kind of baked into that. A lot of people get that accountability by kind of peer support. Like you go to Peloton, right? You jump on the Peloton bike. You work out way harder when you're measuring yourself against all these other people and tracking and trending in a, in a supportive environment. It's really effective. And so I think the wearables is, is here to stay. And I think what will be great is when you know that your care team is actually paying attention. Now, the doctor doesn't always need to know that you took 10,000 steps every day or, or did your workout for 30 minutes. But the health coach might, another member of your care team might really be interested in that. It's going to you know, encourage you and support you. So I think as we get more and more instrumented and as we set up the parameters so that people give permission for their team to monitor their health, that's where we get really exciting. This is what, and let me just give one anecdote on this. During COVID, this is the first time our employers finally got what we were doing. And here's why. COVID is a disease that evolves over time. So you had to you connect with your care team. And then we tracked with you over days and sometimes weeks, you know, making sure you were okay and that we were checking in with you. And do you have transportation? Do you have food? Do you have medicine? And, and so for the first time, the employer saw, oh, for this condition, you guys are there with them all along the way, tracking with them. And it's not like we're taking a ton of time. It's just like a quick message, a follow-up, a touch, right? And then they're like, well, that's actually how you guys do. That's how we do it for all these other conditions. When you have diabetes, when you have asthma, when you have whatever, we're walking with you. You're connected. 
we're, we're tracking with you. And so now you just go to wearables, which is just yet another way to track and trend this stuff. And so do I really need to watch your heart rate variability? Uh, maybe, but, but to know that I can do it and I'm with you and you got someone who's helping keep you accountable. I think that's where this really starts to get interesting. It's just that back to that example, my patient, sometimes people are willing to do it for others more than they're willing to do it for themselves. But once they get started on that train, then it's all good for them and they're doing it for their families and then they do it for themselves and then they're off to the races. Okay, my next and last question is, money solves all of healthcare's ginormous headaches, true or false? <laughs> I would have to say false, man. We're spending $4 trillion a year, three, four X other kind of uh, people for not achieving the same outcome. And, and uh, you know, listen, there's so much graft and waste and problems. I think you concluded that a little bit in, in, in your thing. Here's, what, here's all I'll say. If you're an employer, you are paying a ton of money for your healthcare and it's going up five, eight, 10% a year. And all I'll say is this, is that is eating at your bottom line directly. That is taking away opportunities for you to invest in your employees and other aspects of your business. And since you know how to innovate, you know how to manage supply chains, why not manage your healthcare supply chain? Why is this the only part of your business that you don't even pay attention to? And what I'm saying is it is a competitive differentiator if employers will roll up their sleeves like they have in every aspect of their business and figure out what drives cost changes in my population. And my suspicion it would be, as you do that, as you invest in that, you're gonna find that you need great primary care as the foundation. You need great benefit design to support the care models and the payment models that lead to great outcomes. You should be investing in relationships and care teams and holding those teams accountable. And you're gonna get great results in the return of cost savings, in objective improvements in quality and a slam bam awesome experience for your entire population it becomes the best benefit. It's retentive, it's productive for you, increased productivity and it, and it works. And here's the thing, it's not magic, it's not easy. It goes back to the very foundation of what primary care is. At the end of the day, we touch our patients in all aspects of the word and we can help get them to where they become accountable for their own health and that is what we mean by saying, you know, health is the new wealth, right? I mean, this is it. This is how you generate value for the individuals, for your companies and so forth. It's hard work, but it is incredibly rewarding. And we're, we're trying to make a dent in the universe and our little part of it to make this happen. Well, if I were selling for you, I would say to a client, by the way, what is your minimum number of belly buttons you'll take for a new client? You know, it's interesting. When we were building physical centers, we found that the kind of low end was, you know, really about 2,500. We could go as low as 1,000. But now with virtual, we could take anyone, man. Oh, great. Okay. So the drop to my client, if I were selling for you, would be, I'd say, we have Amazon. Call me when you're ready for me. Boom. <laughs> and what is, a, what is a reason why a client would tell you no? I can't think of yeah. one single objection that makes I, sense. I can inertia and, 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 and risk. This is not easy. Like you got to go pitch to your CFO. Hey, listen, I'm spending, you know, this much money on this and, and I got I need a budget allocation for this thing. I got to build a center. I've got to put my reputation on the line. I've got to go up this hill and get five levels of approval. I've got to get consultants in here to CYA my decision and I'm, I'm I, you know, I don't wanna do anything that's gonna disrupt the boat. There's gonna be some noise from my employees. I mean, I think there's a lot of things that get in the way. And here's what I love. There are people that look at that daunting task and they say, you know what? The right thing to do 
is to climb that mountain, solve every one of these things, because this is the right answer. And, and they go through it. And we call those people health activists, employers. These are the ones that are willing to climb that mountain. Yeah. Yeah. Of all your, of all your competitors, Scott, who do you respect the most? Great question. We have a lot of, you know, great, great uh, people that we battle against and, 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 and we, to be honest, like, I love all these models. What, what I, I've actually taken an abundant approach to this. I used to be much more like, I'm just, oh, screw those guys. They're not that good. This, that, and the other. I have respect for all the people that are swinging the hammer, trying to get this right and, and so forth. And, you know, I actually look to a lot of the Medicare advantage people because I think those guys are doing God's work, right? Some of the hardest toughest, most disadvantaged patients. And what I love is they've, they've got it right. A lot of the groups like the VA, these integrated delivery systems, they've got it right. But what we're trying to do is apply those principles to the commercial sector. And can I virtually recreate what they have vertically built? And can I stay with my patients? Can I leverage the technology that's unique to my platform? And so I look at a lot of those guys, what they're doing. I see the impact. I want to have that same impact for my segment. We look different. We have different capabilities, different assets because of the people we serve. But it's the same principle of great primary care at the foundation. You pay the doctors and the providers and the care teams in an appropriate way. You expect outcomes and you deliver results. And it's just that this is the future. This is what we should be doing for everyone. Yeah. How has uh, surfing informed your abilities <laughs> as a CEO? You know, one thing about surfing that's that's beautiful, first of all, it's it's always great to be in the ocean and you only need to catch one wave to experience the magic. You know, you in the whole session, you might just catch one wave, but that one wave was just like a beautiful thing. It's like a golf thing when you hit a perfect, perfect ball. Um, but the ocean teaches you patience. It teaches you humility and it teaches you to keep, you got to keep powering through those waves and you got to set yourself up for success. You know, if you watch surfers, you'll see people who know how to position themselves with the waves and they catch the waves all the time. It's just a few degrees that you can be off. You can be on the right board, right in the right, right kind of moment. But if you're not positioned right, you're not going to catch it. So a lot of that is the feel of the ocean. The ocean teaches you respect. It teaches you how to appreciate the moment and, and then just get into that magic zone where you catch those waves and surf. And it is it is like it is magical, man. When you, yeah. when you catch how many, that how many patients does uh, crossover have now? What do you think? Well, if you're going to be riding the wave, what do you think that looks like in three years? Yeah. So we have a goal. We have 400,000 members right now, right? Or eligible patients. And our goal is to have a, a million members in, in three years. And what I mean by that is, uh, you know, just because we have eligible patients doesn't mean that they become members, right? So we've got to take them from an eligible patient who's eligible for the service to one who's actually used the service. And so our goal in the next three years is to get to a million members that have used the service. We've, we've already crossed like our million visits, you know, million interactions, all these different things. But we want to get to where there's a million people who are in this type of care model. But I thought you had, uh, I, thought, I thought Sherpa already had a million when y'all acquired them. <laughs> I, think, I think there were some aspirations to get to that number, but they were just a little shy of it. I'll, I'll say that. Okay. All right. Well, let's if people want to reach you. Well, before I do the reach you question, if you could fly a banner overhead over America saying one thing, what would that be? It would say, <laughs> it would say inevitable, Ron. Okay. And if people want to reach Scott Shreve, what do they do? All right. So you can find me all the traditional places, LinkedIn, Twitter, uh, and my blog, uh, scottshreve.com. Uh, a lot of musings on there. And uh, I like to stay 
fairly active on uh, Twitter. Um, I, I follow more than I post, but um, uh, that, those are the places you can find me. Okay, sounds great. Well, thank you, and uh, we enjoyed the show, and we'll do this again soon, I hope. Okay, thank you, Ron. I appreciate it. Bye now. Thank you for listening. You want to shake things up? There's two things you can do for us. One, go to primarycarecures.com for show notes and links to our guests. And number two, help us spotlight what's working in primary care by listening on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribing and leave us a review. It helps our megaphone more than you know. Until next episode.